Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, the 1943 murder of socialite Patricia Burton by her estranged husband with a secret life, Wayne Lonergan. And so Wayne offers this confession. You know, his whole thing, he's petrified. He, he's showing some of the stories that depicting him as a pervert and uh, and a homosexual, you know, predator. And that upsets him to a, a great extent. So he wants it to end. And, you know, Lore, Lore doesn't lie to him or anything, but, you know, he does tell him what his rights are and that he has to go before... Uh, a judge and even if he admits to the crime and and so forth and you know Wayne just wants it all to stop and he doesn't want to be portrayed like that in the press Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. Always great to have you here. So before we get to the interview, I owe some shout-outs to some of my newest NewsHound-tiered patrons at patreon.com slash mostnotorious, Brian, Amanda, Colette, and Mary Virginia. Thank you so much for your incredible patronage. You are very much appreciated. On with the show. It is such a pleasure to have as my guest today, award-winning, prolific author and historian, Alan Levine. He has written 15 books, and his latest is a real page-turner. It is called Details Are Unprintable, Wayne Lonergan and the Sensational Cafe Society Murder. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, a really interesting story, uh, one that I had never heard before. When did you first come across it, and, and what led you to write a book about it? Right. You know, I had been looking for a true crime story uh, because it always it interested me. I had done some, I've written some mystery, no, historical mystery novels, so the genre and 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 even the film aspects of it. Uh, 
always interests me. And I, and I searched and searched, and it's, to be honest, extremely difficult sometimes to find something that is relevant and has, and has also historical documentation that hasn't been mined before. So, uh, one day I was, you know, just scanning stuff and I came across this article by Raymond Chandler in a 1948 issue of Cosmopolitan magazine, you know, because everything's online nowadays. And so uh, you can find everything. And it was called 10 Greatest Crimes of the Century. And uh, the first, the, the, he, he basically goes through 10 crimes. But, you know, given that the time period that he wrote it, uh, you know, the first crime that he wrote about was the Lindbergh case, uh, the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's son and, and the death of the little boy. And, and, you know, that was, that was very famous, but I, I kept going through them and I hadn't, hadn't really heard of s several of the others. Um, one of them struck me, number nine was this case about Wayne Lonergan, who was from Toronto and I'm from Canada and I've written a book about Toronto. In fact, I had never heard anything about it. And it was about this story about this young, he was accused of killing his uh, wife, who he had been separated from, in 1943 in New York. Um, so right away, you know, the American-Canadian aspect of the story interested me. And I started digging around and, and discovered that there had, had indeed been two earlier, um, there, there's some stories on the Internet about it and in, you know, tabloid magazines and newspapers. But uh, there had been two books. One in the 1950s by a TV writer named Heimer, and uh, and and it, there wasn't it wasn't much. Uh, uh, the book was just really taken from newspaper stories of the time, and then there was another one uh, written in the 1970s uh, that. Um, was more interesting because the author had interviewed uh, Lonergan, but I, I didn't, after having read that book, uh, I thought, first of all, he relied too heavily on the interviews with Lonergan, and then I got to the feeling that Lonergan wasn't quite telling the truth. So uh, I started digging more, and the thing that cemented the story for me was when I I, I decided there must be uh, real documentation and files, and I I got a hold of of someone at the New York uh, Records Office or New York Municipal Archives, and and sure enough, um, the the district attorney's files were available, um, and so after. Uh, after digging into that and visiting the city and uh, we arranged, I arranged to digitize. It was like over 1600 pages of, of files that no one had actually looked at since 1944 or actually 1965 because there was a, there was an appeal in 1965. So the case was reopened slightly, but it, it, it was, you know, from a historian's point of view, the, the material is absolutely fantastic. When I finally got it sent to my home and on these massive files, we, my daughter helped me organize. I started digging into it. I got the whole thing actually copied into hard copy and I started going through it and, and it, I was just like, wow, this is just amazing. You know, it had witness statements, biographical detail of people that I didn't really know a lot about and couldn't find information about. But it had all these, the, the police had done all this, these investigations. It had the medical examiner's report. It had the victim's finances, a story of their marriage. I mean, it was like, and it was like, a, it was a treasure trove of material, I call it. And, and so I realized there was a book here because no one had ever seen this or used it. And I actually, just as an aside, subsequently have found out that, and you may know this and maybe you've talked about it, but, um, it's very difficult to get access to district attorney files in most American states. Um, in New York, 
the New York Record Office of Municipal Archives has, has stuff about cases as long as it's 50 years ago, so let's say up to 1970 now, you can investigate whether or not they have it and they'll get back to you and let you know whether the files are exist. Um, but it's very, other places, not so much. I, I did learn recently after investigating another case in California that privacy laws in California restrict the use of that stuff. I, I, I was looking into a case uh, for another book uh, from 1949 and was told I can't get access to the file. So I thought that was interesting. And then there's another case in Long Island. And they just aren't as organized as is in Manhattan, and you know the files I think that I was looking for another case got lost in a flood so so that it's it's uh the Manhattan stories are are covered in many books, and some people have got access to this stuff, but it is it is really uh it's fantastic i i I don't think I would have delved into the book and the book wouldn't have turned out so well at least from my point of view, if I hadn't had those files, because it gives the book an authenticity and and the truth, uh, as far as I see it. Yeah, yeah. So this is a story with a lot of different facets to it. Yes. It's about a murder. It's about a secret identity. Yes. It's about a failed marriage. And the two figures at the center of this marriage, and it's so interesting how they came together because their backgrounds are so different. Would you talk about Patricia Burton and Wayne Lonergan? Sure. Yes. I mean, that, that's well, that's, of course, the other aspect of the story, because it ended up, I mean, I, I like to call it, a, you know, true crime and, and part social history, because, uh, you know, the other thing about Lonergan was, as you say, well, we can get to it in a minute, but it has to do with his sexual orientation. And, and also, I'm just, I've always been fascinated by the way in which values and and, and Attitudes change over time. I, you know, I did a book about the period 1880 to 1890 to 1930, so I looked into that. But this is even more interesting. But okay, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. So you know, Patricia, Patricia Burton um, grew up uh, in a very wealthy family. Her her family was German, Jewish, and very assimilated. The family was actually not really Burton. Her grandfather was Bernheimer. He was a German immigrant. He came from a German immigrant family, and his father had come to New York in the 1840s, I guess, and become a brewer, a maker of beer, and became very wealthy and very successful. And so uh, William, William Burton was Patricia's father, uh, he his his own his father had also built up the business and and died uh, rather young and so uh, William Burton and his William Bernheimer he was born uh, and his brother decided to change their names during World War One um, partially this was it wasn't totally uncommon among some German Jews who they they said it was because of the war World War One and anti German attitudes but. Uh, it was also about anti-Semitism because at the time uh, there had been a huge amount of uh, German, I mean, East European Jews came to New York as, you know, the famous Lower East Side. And, and so the Jewish population was, was growing in stature and visibility in New York. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the German Jews who thought of themselves as being much more refined and, and assimilated were caught up into that. So a lot of them changed their names and William Bernheimer became William Burton. And so when Patricia was born, her, her family was, um, was uh, highly assimilated. Although there, the I have to say that 
just because they changed their names and the prejudice and discrimination didn't exactly disappear. I mean, these people still suffered. They, 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 but they, but they had the money and to live a particular lifestyle. William Burton ended up getting married, but he, his, his sexual identity is also interesting because the, the story is that uh, he also most likely, well, 99% was either bisexual or gay, but a gay man who got married, I would call him. Um, and it was fairly well known. And I have, I think I have enough evidence uh, to prove that and people who knew him. So uh, he was in an unhappy marriage with Patricia's mother, Lucille Wolf. She came from a Southern Jewish family. They got married and they had Patricia as their only child in 1921 and they lived half the year in south of france and paris where william fancied himself a a painter and he wanted to be an artist but he wasn't he was a mediocre i suppose um, and eventually the the parents uh, there was a lot of a bitter marriage and most likely because i think uh, william was unhappy with his lifestyle he ended up staying in france she took Patricia back to New York and and then Patricia's life sort of was back and forth. His parents then, in a strange kind of thing, got remarried after they got divorced for a few years. They stayed together for a couple more years and mainly they it was I suppose because of they wanted to look after Patricia or Patsy, they called her. So she she was brought up in very wealthy lifestyle, living in France and the United States, looked after by nannies more than her own parents for sure. Um, and she was pampered and somewhat spoiled and, you know, she was only 20, 22 when, when she died. So that, that was essentially her story. Lonergan, Lonergan comes from a, you know, he was born in Toronto, a middle class family. His father was an insurance executive. He lived, uh, you know, he lived near downtown Toronto, actually a couple streets, uh, from where I lived when I was, uh, I, even though I live in, in Winnipeg in Canada, I, I went to university in Toronto in late 70s. So there's this area that's called the Annex, and that's where essentially he lived, too. So I, I lived a couple streets over from where Wayne Lonergan lived um, in a shared a place. Wow. But um, it's a really nice – now it's a nice trendy area. But in, the, in those days, the, the homes were you know, what I would call middle class uh, he was a, you know, his his main thing about him, I would say, is that his mother had some severe psychological problems. I, I think we would call her today bipolar. Um, and so that probably affected his life. He had trouble in school. He went to several schools. He, he, he was always getting in trouble. He was shoplifting, you know, got caught for juvenile delinquent issues. He ended up spending time at a, a youth farm, I guess we would call it, uh, out just outside of Toronto, although today it's part of the city. And, and he was just always getting in trouble. The, the thing about Wayne is, of course, that he was probably also gay or was fighting it most of his life. Or bisexual, one one or the other. I mean, that was part of his identity, uh, even though he denied it uh, more or less his whole life. But it is, the, to me, the one important thing about his character that you have to understand. You know, so he was caught up in this whole thing, um, and and at the time, of course, uh, they had, that's where the social history part of the book comes in. I mean, homosexuality in in the United States and Canada was was a crime, more or less, and. Uh, people were not able to live the way they are now, and so it it was hidden, and and people were uh, discriminated against, and it was something that you know people would have not 
broadcast in any which way. It was, it was very rare. I mean, it did happen in places like New York, but even there, um, in, in New York City, the, the law enforcement was extremely, uh, paranoid about the whole thing. You know, people believe that homosexuality was something that people decided to do and it was a learned behavior rather than that you were born with. So, uh, they, in, in every aspect of society, uh, there was, a, it was almost, a, I would have described it as being similar to the kind of, uh, Treatment that communists got in in the United States in the 1940s and 50s, the homosexuals got a, were treated in, in a somewhat worse way. I mean, if you were discovered to be a homosexual, you you lost your job, and no matter what it was, and you were fired, and 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 your life was ruined. So so people did went to a great extremes to hide this, and one of those things was marrying a woman. Um, and you know maybe and, and who I I can't say for a hundred percent that I know exactly what was going on with these people, and, and like Wayne and William Burton, but but uh, that that to me probably is is closest to what the truth was. So in 1939, after several attempts at jobs and making a so-so living, you know Wayne wanted Wayne was ambitious, he wanted to make money. He decided he got a job as a bus dispatcher at the New York World's Fair of in 1939, which is a very exciting event. And and he this is what led him to New York. And somehow uh, he was he met uh, there's I couldn't exactly pin down the, uh, the exact story, but but probably he met William Burton at the, the, the World's Fair. He also uh, they had this thing at the fair where. Where younger men would pull, uh, would basically chairs on wheels because they were pulling people around. And, and one story is that's how they met. And I guess they were attracted to each other. And, and the story is, as far as I can determine, that they, they had an intimate relationship. And strangely enough, through, through William Burton, Wayne meets his daughter Patricia one day and, and, uh, with William's blessing, I guess their relationship ended, uh, this, they started, William and Patricia started dating a bit. Um, the thing is, William died from a heart attack in 1940 at a, at a young age. Heart attacks ran in his family. His father and brother had also died of them. And Lucille had been living in France for a while, the mother, and then she was very against Wayne and Patricia going out. You know, what exactly, how and why, you know, this relationship uh, went on is, is hard to say. I mean, you know, there's a famous story uh, that uh, one of the one of the tabloid journalists said that Patricia always said, if 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 he's good enough for my father, he's good enough for me. I don't know if that's true, but it's <laughs> a good line that I use. Um, and in in the midst of this, you know, Wayne, Wayne of course was introduced. William had a lot of money, so he was introduced to a lifestyle that he must have you know awed him and living in fantastic apartments on Park Avenue and being taken care of. And this is the era of cafe society, which uh, essentially was a nightclub culture, the star club, the El Morocco, the 21 club, um, where the rich and famous, uh, you know, spent loads of money uh, drinking champagne cocktails and eating fine food and dancing till all hours of the night. Um, and so it, because it was in New York, it got all his attention. And, and with the name Cafe Society, it gave him a, you know, a Parisian style and, and, you know, it was just really about very wealthy people enjoying themselves. 
and and the the clubs themselves had a mystique and an aura. So I delve I delve into the book in that whole culture because Patricia certainly wanted to be part of it, as did Wayne. In fact, the first date they ever went on was to the store club. How how they got in because it was impossible to get in without a reservation. I don't know, but Wayne, according to what he told uh, this other author in the 1970s, uh, somehow managed to get in, at least according to his version of the story. But thereafter, they, they started seeing each other, and Patricia was, uh, even though she she did, once uh, World War One World War Two started, rather, uh, after Pearl Harbor in December 41, uh, she did volunteer and, you know, was not completely devoid of compassion, but she spent a lot of her time before that, I you know, going to debutante balls and and tea parties and that kind of lifestyle. Um, she had lots of friends and, and so forth. But uh, Lucille, the mother, did not want uh, this relationship to go on, and she took Patricia to California for a little while to try to get rid of Wayne. And but he he actually followed them out there, and and they end up eloping in in Las Vegas. Um, so you know, I talk a little bit about Las Vegas in the 1940s, just starting out of it. It was it was a prime place where a lot of movie stars uh, went to, uh, to went to run away and get married. Um, and although the wedding chapels were there, that was quite popular and and made a lot of money for this city. Um, so that's where they got married, and then and then they came back to New York. And so they they were married for a very short time uh, between. 1941 and 1943, when the murder takes place, they had they have a child in July 1942, uh, a little boy um, named Billy or William, named after the father. But the marriage is fraught with problems. Uh, the testimony that I found in the files from people who worked for them, there was huge, you know, there was fighting and. All this bickering and, and Wayne didn't really have a job, to be honest. Patricia's, Patricia had a large trust fund from her father, uh, but she stood also to inherit an awful lot of money when her grandmother died, um, to the tune of, you know, it would, it would have been about seven million in those days, but let's say around 66, 65, 65, 66 million dollars. She would have inherited. Now the grandmother actually didn't die till 1954, but it was worth an awful lot. So she had that, but she lived a pretty good lifestyle. She never worked either, and and I tracked her finances, and you know she did have an awful lot compared to most people. So they were able to have a nice. For a while, they lived in Park Ave on a Park Avenue apartment in New York, and and Wayne sort of played bridge, and you know I don't know, didn't do much. He wasn't really a great father. Uh, they had a they had a nanny taking care of the little boy, just the same way that Patricia was born, and she and they went out a lot, and but their marriage was terrible, and he would, you know, they would go to a club, and and he would just disappear for hours on end and leave her, and much you know, and she would end up going home crying and stuff. They were an attractive couple. They, well, they were. I mean, you know, they, he was a good-looking guy, um, you know, and there's a picture in the book from him. He was a lifeguard, so there's this sort of picture of him in a, in a bathing suit by the pool, and he's all very muscular and good-looking. And and she was she was a good-looking woman as well. And so, yeah, I mean, they were they were young. I mean, he was only 20 uh, at the time when the murder took place. She he was 25 and he, uh, about to be 26, and she was. 
she was only 22. So, and, and, and a young mother and, you know, even though she loved the little boy somewhat out of her depth, but then again, she had enough money to hire this, uh, you know, middle-aged, uh, governess to look after the little boy who, and that's, you know, thank God that, that was, uh, the boy was raised by this woman for a while. Um, you know, she would, and, you know, to be, the, the, the night of the, the actual murder, for example, uh, by the, by this time, Wayne, they, by 19, the end of the summer of 1943, their marriage had fallen apart. Uh, Wayne stuck around in New York for a little while and he, he was, uh, getting various jobs and tried to be a photographer for a little while. But then he decided to, uh, enlist in the Royal Canadian Air Force and move back to Toronto where he began his training. I should also add one other interesting aspect of the story was about some months before that, even though he was Canadian, he was still eligible for the American draft after Pearl Harbor. And so, uh, the American government, the draft board did come after him. And, and, you know, this is the other aspect of this story that he, he eventually got out of it by claiming he was gay. Um, again, then later saying years later that it was all, it was all just a ruse, which, which probably some men did do, but the army at the time was extremely paranoid about it. And they had all these ridiculous tests to determine if someone was a homosexual, which I, which I look at in some detail it was just really, from our point of view, quite absurd kinds of tests, personality tests. And, but there was a lot of literature about it at the time. And, and, you know, people connected homosexuality with crime and perversion and things like that. So, uh, Wayne used that as an excuse. And, and then he decided, well, no, you, you know, if he's going to be in an army or military, he's going to go back to Canada. So once, even though he has a child and, the marriage is he doesn't have anything else to do. And so he's looking, I think he's a guy looking for something in his life. He ends up going back to Toronto and uh, enlisting and, and he's involved in sort of this officer training program at the University of Toronto. And he, and he lives close to where he grew up. And that's the situation as of October 1943. And he is allowed to visit New York to see his family. And on this particular weekend in October 1943, he is in New York when when all of these various events take place that I discuss and the weekend of the murder. And, and I look at what exactly they were both up to. I know that you have to read into some of the, the, the stuff here because of the, the friction in their marriage. But you suggest that maybe he was going out on the town on his own. Uh, without her, and she probably had an idea of some of his extramarital activities. Yes, well, yeah, I mean, did she know? Did she know about him? Let's. I assume yes. Uh, I mean, so again, the friction in their marriage is caused by certainly added, you know, Wayne's uh, bisexuality or uh, issues like that. It was certainly caused about money or his lack of it. Uh, you know, at the time, again, and you know, the era. It was extremely frowned upon that men who use their wife's money to live on. It was not something seen as a very manly thing to do or a good thing for a marriage. I, I found some really f- kind of funny, from our point of view, got a good columnists in various newspapers writing about all this kind of stuff. So there was the money. Um, and then, you know, their relationship, because they got so mad at each other, she also wrote him out of his the, the will near the end. That was the other issue and and left she just told him one day that she was leaving all of her money to their son 
and he wasn't to get any. So did that cause him to lose it? You know, perhaps that was part of it as well. You know, I, I guess I can say, even though, you know, it's not, uh, yeah, I don't want to give away too much of the story here, but, um, you know, the, the, in my view, what happened wasn't premeditated. It, it, it was an, an act of rage that got out of control, but, um, that it got out of hand rather. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything Podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So let's talk about October 23rd, uh, if you don't mind. The events leading up to Patricia's murder. Okay, so Wayne, Wayne arrives in New York very late on Friday, it would have been October 22nd. Uh, in those days, you know, it took several, with today's like a 40 minute flight, took several hours to fly from Toronto to New York. And uh, he stays at the, uh, he is, he's invited to stay at, a, on 79th Street uh, near Lexington. At a at a nice apartment belonging to a very wealthy man uh, named John Hargis, whose family is in the banking business. And again, you know, this is someone Wayne sort of met and came into contact with through his entrance into the world of Patricia and her family. And so this guy, they became friends, strangely enough. And and Hargis, uh, 
is uh, involved in some World War II work, but you know he's excessively wealthy. He has a butler and a maid, and uh, and uh, he invites Wayne to stay with him. And uh, Wayne shows up very late, and then in the morning the two of them have breakfast. And uh, Hard just has to go into the country for a wedding, and he he leaves, and you know the, with instructions to his butler and his the butler's wife, who acts as the maid, you know, that Wayne is uh, is allowed to stay over a Saturday night. He also um, arranges, He Wayne has tickets to a musical, a Broadway musical, and he introduces Wayne to a neighbor that he knows, this young starlet named Jean Jayberg. Um, and they eventually, that this works out and, and she accompanies Wayne to the musical that night. Um, so during the day, that Saturday, that important Saturday, you know, Wayne visits his son with Patricia not there. Patricia had already left by the time he got there, but the nanny's there along with a maid. And, and so Wayne, Wayne sees him. But by this time, Patricia had moved to a, uh, a townhouse or, uh, the, the three floors of a townhouse that still exists on uh, East 51st Street. Um, not, not too far from like near Second Avenue. So it's, it, I stood in front of the place and it's, it's quite nice. That's always so interesting when that the house or the building of a historical crime still stands. Yeah, no, I mean, I visited, I, I went to New York and visited every spot. Like I, I've heard just this apartment where Wayne State is still there. Talking to the doorman was kind of interesting because uh, I tried to get a sense of Jean Murphy Jayberg, the woman uh, who, who Lonergan dated, sort of lived in in the, the adjacent apartment. So I wanted to see exactly because I couldn't quite figure out how these places were side by side. So I talked to them and then I went and stood in front of the the actual place where Patricia, where the murder took place. There, there's a physician uh, living there. And I, I did actually e- email the the person, but she never got back to me. I don't think she was looking in her house. <laughs> but I, she, I don't even think she knows what was going on there in 1943. So, so it's like it's got four stories on a ground floor. So Patricia had the ground floor and the first two floors, uh, and the second floor would have been like the second floor of the house is where her bedroom was. And on the third and fourth floor, there was another family who, who I did track down. Uh, I tracked down the daughter. She wasn't live. She wasn't born when this was took place, but I, it was her father that lived there with his wife and first wife and child. And so I, I did track track. That was kind of interesting. I learned a little bit about them, but she doesn't have any memory. She didn't really know uh, anything about what was going on there. So Patricia had rented this place. And uh, she had moved there. She the, she the nanny lived there with looking after the little boy, Billy. And there's also a maid that she had. So, you know, your typical rich family. You know, and that that day, P- Patricia had left to go to a friend's house at early afternoon. And and she's gone like that's it for like, you know, in the next 15 hours or something. Um, but Wayne visits and, and then he returns and this seizes Jean Murphy Jayberg, this good-looking blonde uh, she's she's a young mother about 28 years old and they have a nice evening out Wayne's dressed in his uniform because uh, that's his that was his dress and his Air Force uniform and they uh, have a nice they go for dinner and they almost bump into uh, Patricia's out also at one of the clubs and they they almost bump into her but they weren't they couldn't get in to the El Morocco I think is where she is and they, you know, nothing much more happens. They, she, he, it's late, but they have a, they have a nightcap and 
Wayne and um, Jean go back to their place and, and they say goodnight to each other. And even though Wayne later claimed that he kissed her and some some intimacy happened, Jean Jaybird claims that that wasn't the case. Um, so then there's a another aspect. Wayne then Wayne then, according to what he first tells the police, uh, encounters a American soldier um, and. He he invites, it's like 2.30 in the morning or something like that, and he invites the soldier into um, Harge's apartment, and the butler and his wife are sleeping, so they don't hear any of this. This is according to Wayne's story, and it, you know the intention is that the soldier's also gay, and, and he's interested in a homosexual encounter with Wayne, and, and this is what takes place. Um, but there's a conflict between the two of them at some point during the eve in the middle of the night and again i go into more details in the book uh, but uh you know suffice it to say that according to wayne's version of the story the soldier uh scratches him and they have a physical altercation because wayne catches him trying to steal stuff and he does make off with uh wayne's watch apparently as well as his uniform. Now, you know, the question, the key question of this from a, from a true crime point of view is why would an American soldier want to steal a Canadian Air Force uniform? <laughs> uh, could, well, okay, you know, and, and so, um, this becomes the, the great alibi and the alibi itself to the homosexual aspect to it taints the entire story of the case. Um, and when the tabloids learn about it later, the New York Daily News runs its famous twisted sex headline, which I have a picture of in the book. I mean, and that really says it all. And and there is it, it generates reams of commentary uh, that I uh, I discuss in more detail about homosexuality and, and Wayne. And it it really paints a negative picture of him. And even later, I could say that when he says the whole thing was made up and it never happened, it still is there. And they look, I really do believe the all male jury looks at him and, and sees him that way. And, and it does taint their, their image of him. It's not the only thing that led to his conviction, but. Uh, of course, but uh, it, it certainly plays a huge part. And so it hangs over the the story of the case, because the case itself, for whatever reason, I mean, I guess young and she's rich, but the but the, the, the case itself generated massive amounts of uh, newspaper coverage, more more than most murders, I think. I, maybe it has to do with the wealth and the cafe society aspect to it, I'm not, and, and maybe, and, and also the stuff about the sex that certainly, uh, but it wasn't only the tabloid papers, it was also the New York Times, and they covered it extensively. And, you know, I, I, I say that this, the story of what happened to Wayne pushed the Second World War off the front pages, and that's literally what happened. You know, for for that, that was front page news and all the things that people talked about for a long time. So Patricia's day on Saturday, she, as I said, she had left. She had left to go see a friend. Then she had a date with a uh, slightly older Italian guy. She was dating a decorator by the last name of Gabellini. Uh, she had seen him. He was a fun guy, but 
clearly, uh, you know, he was guy, probably a good uh, 15, 16, 17 years older than her. And he liked going out in a good time. She's found him amusing, though I don't really think she was quite serious about him. Um, and he had no money and was probably interested in her money and, and, and anything else he could get out of her. And so they, they go on a date, um, with some other people and it turns out to be, they ended up, I think, Sorry, at the Stark Club, I believe, if I didn't, if I got this wrong. And it's her last night out. And she arrives home that, so it'd be Sunday morning already, October 24th at 6.30 a.m. They, they, their friend, they go for a late breakfast and a drink. And, and so she comes home and, and she doesn't, and Gabellini probably wants to come in with her, and but she doesn't let him. And, and then, so she's in back at her place at 6.30 in the morning on September 24th. And then what happens is open, well, is, is open to some conjecture, although Wayne ultimately, when he is, uh, after the body is discovered, I, I, I suppose I'm skipping ahead here, but, um, well, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit more before I get to that. So, uh, around nine o'clock that morning, the uh nurse or governess who's looking after the child upstairs in the third and fourth floor through the ray family they were called um she hears some noise and a woman screaming uh, she's she's getting a newspaper at the time there was sort of a common area for both families around around the second floor of the building and she doesn't there one of Patricia's bedroom had two doors, one into her apartment and the other into this common area. The woman uh, who's very young, uh, like in her early 20s, doesn't knock on the door uh, and she was about to. But she later told the police she didn't think it was any of her business. She doesn't hear a man's voice. She doesn't hear anybody. No one sees anything. The uh, the governess is at the time getting young Billy breakfast. She doesn't see anybody come in or out of the house either so there's that um aspect to it as well and then um nothing and then there's quiet and so everybody goes about their day on that sunday the governor still looks after she doesn't she knows that uh, patricia's sleeping so she doesn't knock on her door and she takes the baby out for a walk and the day goes by and she's starting to get a little concerned and uh, by around six o'clock she calls Patricia's mother Lucille who doesn't live too far away but at this point and Lucille comes over and bangs on the bedroom door which is locked and they can't open it and can't get in and you know maybe she thinks Patricia went to the country uh, with Gabellini uh, but but in fact uh, then they start to wonder well if that's true why is the bedroom door locked um, and ultimately, I have, at that point, a friend uh, uh, phones, a, a male friend of Patricia's who, who happens to be actually, you know, this sort of rugged guy who's in the, in the army at the time, uh, is also a former football player. He comes over uh, after Lucille, the, the mother, asks him to and tries to get in. And he figures out finally that the hinges on the door, bedroom door can be taken off. And that's how they get in the door. And he enters the bedroom and uh, the, the scene in the prologue of the book I have, they go into the bedroom and and they find Patricia bloody and beaten on her bed um, and dead. Uh, and uh, there's that that's sort of how that scene ends. And then uh, you know, after in the book itself, I then go back and and, and talk about the 
Wayne and Patricia and their marriage and then come back to the police. The police arrive on the scene. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, the high ranking officers show up, the constables, they have the medical deputy medical examiner shows up. Um, and the district attorney from the homicide division or assistant district attorney, uh, Jacob Grume and uh, John, the, his deputy, John Lower. Uh, are both notified and they become, they become keys to the case. Um, and so they learn quickly by talking to the mother and a few other people and they, um, that, uh, Wayne was in, uh, they talked to the governess. They learned that Wayne Lonergan was in New York, that he has since gone back to Toronto. He, he took a plane, uh, around at Sunday evening, that Sunday evening about six o'clock and he arrived back in Toronto later that night. Without his uniform, um, which is the, uh, someone who's this Jean Jayberg that I had mentioned. She saw Wayne that Sunday for lunch and he wasn't wearing his uniform. He was, he was wearing John Harges's uh, clothes, which were oversized on him. And he, all he could say was that his uniform was stolen by this soldier, but he didn't really go into the details of the homosexual encounter with Jean Jayberg. She later, of course, uh, his, she had claims to be a Broadway star, which she was in a few Broadway productions, but she says the case ruined her life. And there, I, despite my best efforts, I couldn't really track her after the, uh, after the murder, uh, or, or her son. She sort of disappears from the story. So Wayne's back in Toronto and, and then the police learn, uh, and the D, ADAs learn about his involvement and decide that they must speak to him. You know, the, the other thing about this crime and, you know, of course, from the other interesting aspect is that if this thing had taken, this crime had taken place today or in the last 15, 20 years, there would have been DNA and the whole thing would have been solved in 20, you know, in an hour. You know, it was a long, you know, like a CSI episode on TV. But uh, as you know, uh, D, there was no DNA. Fingerprint analysis was extremely wasn't wasn't good always at the time, and blood analysis was worse. You know they they just they did understand blood type, but what does that really tell you? You know if someone was uh, had a particular blood type A or B or A uh, AB na- even negative, it it didn't really tell you. You couldn't prove that that was the same person. I mean they found cigarettes. But, you know, they couldn't really do any testing on them, even though the cigarettes may have been the same brand that Wayne smoked or Patricia smoked. It, it really didn't matter. They found a lifesaver that someone chewed up. Was it Patricia's or was it uh, Wayne's or, or somebody else that was there? So so the scientific forensic aspect of the case, so very interesting, really was did they didn't it didn't they didn't have any information. The fingerprints that they did find they couldn't read properly. There just wasn't enough or the technology wasn't good enough at the time. And as I said, the DNA wasn't there. So whatever they whatever they could have found they they did they weren't able to use. So uh you know the medical examiner produced an interesting autopsy, you know, the report of how she died and so forth. Um and um and that played a part in the trial. Uh, the, the other thing I would just add is interesting is that uh, I did, and I didn't know this until I researched, but New York State has one of, the, had one of the worst, uh, the process of the defense really had no right to any information that the D district attorney wanted to give it to, to them. And that really carried up until recently. The DA had an awful lot of power. And so in, in this case, there was a summary of the medical examination and the whole medical examination, which I have both copies of both. 
And uh, the defense attorney later claimed Wayne's fence, Wayne was charged with the crime, as I'm getting to that. But uh, the, the, the defense attorney later claimed that the whole thing was manipulated, and if he could see the whole real thing, um, then he would prove that Wayne was innocent. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, I compared the two documents. Uh, the, the summary was fairly complete, and what was left out was not that important. But it, it does sort of strike me as to why Grumet, Jacob Grumet, who is the lead ADA, why he just didn't turn over all the evidence. It's, you know, it's almost like a power play. It was kind of interesting. He didn't have to, so he didn't. And no matter how much pleading in the judge, the court wouldn't side with him. And that was the way it was done. And it was from disclosure rules were really poor in New York. Anyways, I, I thought that was I thought that was kind of interesting. So you know, eventually uh, the other part of the book, uh, Wayne, they, the Toronto police are act, you know are happy to help the New York police. They get a telegram to go find Wayne Lonergan, and they, his his address is in Patricia's uh, address book that they find, and they provide the address, and it was close to the University of Toronto, which is in downtown Toronto, and and they find Wayne on the morning of October 25th, 1943. It's a Monday. There's already a story in the Globe and Mail. Uh, in the Toronto Globe and Mail, that uh, tiny or story on page two or three, I found about this woman being murdered in New York. They, they call her a hostess. Uh, you know, no mention that her husband. Uh, I, I think I think they do link uh, that he's the that she's the wife of a RCF RCAF or Royal Canadian Air Force cadet. And so the police show up, um, and and you know what what happens next is sort of a strange kind of thing and you know i uh wayne is agrees to go with the toronto police to the toronto police headquarters they they sort of butter him up keep him comfortable no one no one touches him and he's sort of left alone and until the new york police authorities and the actually the uh the ada this john lore deputy ada flies to toronto uh but he doesn't see him till the next almost the next day or he arrives late that night because his plane's delayed and then there begins sort of this lore and lars in his 30s at the time and i i did talk to his sons uh, one's a judge and the other lives in uh, new mexico um and they told me a bit about their father and and uh, what he was like. And so that was kind of interesting. Uh, I, I tried to get into that part of the book. And Laura's interrogation of Wayne is, is in the Toronto, in Toronto is interesting. I mean, he was, Wayne was never charged with a crime. They claim he never wanted to speak with a lawyer, which is bizarre, even though there was later a yelling and screaming about the fact that the family did, the, Wayne had some, an uncle, and he did say that he would pay for a lawyer. But the Toronto police didn't quite handle it, what I would say correctly. And there were stories in the Toronto papers that Wayne's rights were not being followed. Uh, but Wayne himself sort of went along with it. He he's sort of like a deer in the headlights. He, he you know he he's asked several times in in the official transcript of the Toronto interrogation, which went on for several hours, whether he wanted a lawyer, and he he said no. And so they kept questioning him and. Um, and, and they go over various aspects of the case. And this is when the story of Wayne's interaction with that soldier, the American soldier, uh, who he has, a, who he has intimate relations with come, comes out. And, and both, everybody's rather skeptical about the whole story because it's a little far-fetched, especially about the uniform. And Wayne uh, agrees again without 
talking to a lawyer, he agrees to accompany New York police and, and the district attorney authorities back to New York to undergo more questioning. Again, not charged with a crime. Um, so it's kind of interesting. He, he at one point he's even handcuffed because they get stuck in Buffalo, New York, and uh, they the detectives who are accompanying him don't want him to leave, and so so this guy's never been charged with anything yet. He's he's handcuffed to a bed all night, and and so they eventually the story ends up you know they end up in the Jacob Grimay's office in in Lower Manhattan. Where the official uh, the, in- the official interrogation of Wayne goes on, and and um, I guess I could say that it eventually leads to a confession, and extremely detailed. And I have the whole transcript of the the actual you know original transcript of the confession, and a lot of the confess some of it was actually published in the New York Times and other newspapers as well. Some of they got a hold of it. I mean, the police were leaking all this stuff. I mean, they had obviously police sources and uh, the journalists were getting fed information all the time because a lot of the time, a lot of most of the information in the papers was somewhat accurate. Sometimes they got some facts wrong age. They kept referring to Wayne by the wrong age and and certain other things, um, other details. But more or less, you know, it's fairly accurate. And and so Wayne offers this confession, you know, his whole thing. He's petrified. He, he's shown some of the stories that depicting him as a pervert and, uh, and a homosexual, you know, predator. And that upsets him to a, a great extent. So he wants it to end. And, you know, Lore, Lore doesn't lie to him or anything, but, you know, he does tell him what his rights are and that he has to go before, uh, a judge and even if he admits to the crime and and so forth and you know Wayne just wants it all to stop and he doesn't want to be portrayed like that in the press I mean you wouldn't think that that would be enough to get someone to confess to a crime but given this given the era and the kind of humiliation that men suffered because of it and this is before the internet and everything, so everything's in the newspaper, but you know, he just couldn't handle the press and he thought about his life and his son and, and, and Lore actually sort of guilts him in a little bit to telling the truth and he agrees to tell exactly what happened. You know, so the confession itself, uh, I'll, without going into too much detail, I'll just say that it's very detailed. No one, no one, certainly not Wayne Lara could make it up. So to me, it's, it's a fairly accurate portrayal of, what happens and how he does end up at Patricia's apartment at a particular time. And they have an interaction that uh, leads to her murder. And, you know, I, as I said, it's, it's really Wayne goes into a rage and things get carried away. I don't really believe he intended to kill her, but uh, he lost his temper and they had a big fight and, and uh, he, you know, essentially just lost it. And, and, you know, like m- many murders I, I think are committed. And, um, there, so, you know, there's, there's that, there's that aspect to it. The other, the other thing I get into in, you know, Wayne's whole, in later years, for years later, in fact, Wayne claims that the confession was coerced, that he was beaten, that he was, you know, called all sorts of names, that they deprived him of, you know, food and water. And, and, and because I, you know, I, I, I examine this very carefully and, I, I talk to people in, in the legal community and I examine the, every, every affidavit by every person involved in the case. And, you know, I, I arrive at the conclusion that in this case, there was no coerced confession. Not that coerced confessions don't, uh, 
happen because we know they do. And there's very many famous cases, even in, you know, in New York. I, I allude to the Central Park Five, the, the teenagers uh, who were, conf- you know, coerced into confessing to a to a rape and murder that they didn't do. Uh, many some years ago, there's been Netflix movies about it and and, and books and Sarah. So I mean, you know, getting the third degree has a long history in in New York police and 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 people were beaten into giving confession. This, however, was not one of those times, as I make clear. So you know, he was he was given food, water, cigarettes. He was a chain smoker. He he no one abused him. No one no one, to my knowledge, physically touched him. Um, and he, you know, the, the, te- you just can't ignore the testimony. There would have have to have been such a grand conspiracy, uh, among all the people involved to, to, to protect the, the, this kind of story. It, it seems, it just doesn't, isn't not logical in my point of view after examining the evidence. So, you know, my conclusion is that he, he was not coerced and, and, and despite challenging this several times in court and then later in the 1960s, after rules changed about how confessions are treated in court. And again, I, I, I won't get into too much detail, only that I, there are, there were three different ways that confessions were treated. New York had the least, that the way that was regarded as not great as, in other words, it was up to the jury and not for the judge to define whether things were coerced. So in the New York cases up to the 1960s, the jury had the, basically could interpret what would happen in any way they wanted, um, which doesn't seem right now. Now the judge has to decide first before the jury can hear it. Uh, but that's also, you know, that's a, in a more recent time. But in the 1940s, it was just really up to the jury. So they decided that they, because again, you know, they're, there was no physical evidence linking Wayne to the crime. That, that's the other interesting thing about this case. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? I'd love it if you could touch on the reason why he felt he had to offer up a story about why his uniform was gone. Right. Once he somewhat agreed that the story of the soldier stealing it was nonsense, and he picks some random name. And the funny thing is this guy actually turns up with the same name because his friends were were teasing him that he was gay and, and he wanted to prove that he wasn't. So, he, you know, <laughs> Wayne was, meets this guy who uh, lives near New York and the two don't know each other clearly. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, but, you know, obviously the story was contrived. So, he, you know, that's the thing. Uh, he never... There, he never actually explains what happened. There is a, there is a, a witness. Uh, he, he tells the police that the, he threw the, the uniform, uh, in the river. He puts it in a duffel bag with a dumbbell, uh, like a, a weight and he throws the, the whole thing in the river and that's that, his watch that had blood on it and, and the uniform. Um, but then, then changes his mind about it. And, you know, he, he just never can, never really explains that one aspect of the story. You know, he's, he claims he never killed Patricia, that he was set up, that it can, and it's, that his confession was a lie, uh, including the fact that he threw the duffel bag in the river. And I, and I should, I could say that also that there was a woman who knew him in the neighborhood that did see him carrying something a duffel bag to the in the direction of the east river which is not far from where he lived was uh living uh so you know there's that but again if the confession was coerced and he didn't do it and he's innocent what happened to his uniform and uh he he just never uh explained that at all and and so that that was that sort of puts a whole in the story, uh, Hamilton Darby Perry, the the other author I mentioned who wrote the book in the 1970s, who was a little, you know, he, he he a little kinder to to Wayne, even though he he you know he went along with a lot of Wayne's lies uh, in a sense, or or listen, or at least was willing to consider them more than I was probably. He, this author has actually passed away in 2009, although I, I did speak with his wife, who's a magazine writer in living in New York. But, um, you know, and, and in that book, uh, he also says, you know, Wayne never explains what happened to the uniform. He, he just it's it's unexplainable, which suggests that 
his confession was quite accurate and he probably did throw it in the East river in a bag. Um, and, and, you know, there was a weight missing from Harges's apartment. Uh, he owned some dumbbell. That's where he got the, that's where he got the weight from. And, you know, of course they couldn't prove that maybe it got lost or something, but you know, it's certainly circumstantial and suspicious. So, so that's likely, uh, what, what really happened. Um, and you know, um, because the, the the uniform had blood on it. I mean, after the crime, I had some fun. In Wayne's confession, he describes after he left Patricia's apartment, after she, you know, he somehow got out without without the governess or anybody else seeing him. This is like around this is around nine nine thirty. You know, so so you know, Wayne Wayne took this. He got once he was outside on East 51st Street, he took this crazy route back to East 79th, which is, you know, whatever, 20, 30, almost 30 blocks. And this crazy route that took him about 30, 35 minutes. So I decided when I was there, I uh, I walked the exact route. But it was it was I had to deal with a little more traffic and traffic lights. He was walking on a early on a Sunday morning. So mind you, it took me I'm a lot older and it took me 36 minutes and I walked as fast as I could. So I got and I got back to John Harges's apartment on East 79th. So Wayne, Wayne, Wayne. But then, you know, no one saw him wearing this bloody uniform. Uh, which he was wearing at the time. He was, he didn't get rid of it until he got back to Harges's and Harges's butler did not see him enter with the uniform on. So maybe he just got lucky or maybe there just weren't a lot of people out on a Sunday morning in October. I, I guess that that's what I would say. Um, but it was, anyways, it was fun. It was kind of interesting to, to do that. That's one good thing about when you write a story about New York, everything's still there. Nothing changes. Mind you, the Stork Club and the El Morocco are no longer. I, there was a burger joint where the Stork Club was, and I, I, I went in there to have some lunch one day, and nobody. I, I was talking to the people who worked there. They had no idea that there, one of the most famous nightclubs in the world was once on this property. <laughs> <laughs> so th- there is no question in your mind that he he committed this murder, right? In my mind, no. No, I, first of all, like his confession is, is, is very detailed and, and there's no other person. Why would, who else would do it? I mean, initially I, I, uh, there's a Gabellini, Mario Gabellini, the Italian decorator. <laughs> they thought he was involved and the poor guy had to spend hours locked up waiting to be interrogated. The police raided his apartment and they found a white shirt with, with red on it, which they assumed initially was blood, but it turned out to be tomato sauce. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I thought that was good. Um, yeah, he was, they were all just, uh, yeah, the people caught up in it were, were shocked and, you know, Hard just came forward with the story and explained, uh, you know, the missing clothes and all sorts of other things. You know, he was an above board guy. I don't think he ever talked to Wing Lonergan again. You know, the, the other thing I, I, interesting is, uh, when Lonergan eventually spends 20, almost 22 years in jail, uh, in, uh, Sing Sing initially and then he gets transferred to, uh, Clinton prison or Dan Mora, it's called in upstate New York. And eventually he's released in 19, December 1965. Um, and he is deported back to Canada. Um, and at the time there was a reporter uh, for the Globe and Mail who took a real interest in the case. His name was Scott Young, actually. They, he's the father of the singer Neil Young. And, um, he, he decided to 
he wrote tons of several articles about Lonergan again, you know, suggesting perhaps that Lonergan had been railroaded and so forth. And, and he, he helps them when, once they drop him off in Montreal, near Montreal, he wanted to get back to Toronto where his family was still his brother and sister. And, uh, this Scott Young helps Lonergan and writes stories about him, but he also, there's also a, there was a, an, he has, he's involved in an interview uh, for television. Um, there was a show in Canada called This Hour Has Seven Days. Uh, it, it was, uh, really at that, for its time, a, uh, you know, sort of like a 60 minutes show, but it was, as I call it, a, it was a mix between 60 minutes and, and Jerry Springer. And it, it, because they did all sorts of crazy things. The show was extremely contentious and they would, they would, you know, try to, they, they had a, black civil rights leader on with a Ku Klux Klan guy dressed in a costume, uh, his whole outfit. So, you know, it made for provocative television. Let's put it that way. And this is the 1960s. And at the time, the CBC, though, not owned the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, though not um, a uh, public broadcaster. It was getting money from the federal government. And, and the whole show became a huge point of contention and discussed on the floor of the Canadian House of Commons. But anyways, Wayne was uh, interviewed on the show. And I, I tracked down the journalist who was in charge of it. He's in his 80s right now. And... Uh, I talked to him and he does remember the interview and I, and I, it took great, I, I got access. I searched the actual raw footage of the interview I found in the archives and the national archives in Ottawa. And I got, I got the sound video. So it's, it's very interesting. And, uh, and I was able to hear Lonergan's voice and he, and he has this thick Bronx accent. Uh, you know, he uses the phrase forget about it several times. And, you know, he's from Canada, but he was, Talking like someone who lived in Queens or the Bronx all his life, but but he you know he was very coy in the interview. Like they the whole interview was a couple hours, but they they just edited it down probably on TV to about fifteen minutes. And I I didn't I couldn't that thing doesn't exist anymore, so I don't I didn't see it. I just could hear it. But he never. It's, it's two things struck me about it. One was his accent um, when when the interviewer asked him whether he killed his wife you know he says uh, his his phrase was he said his position right now is no that's what he answered and i also found it interesting in the two hours he he only referred to her as my wife he never once mentioned her by name like he didn't call her patsy or they that was her nickname or patricia which i thought was also interesting and you know he he spent uh, most of the rest of his life, uh, he died in 1986. Uh, he ended up spending the rest of his life in Toronto. And he, and he ended up befriending a rather well-known actress, or at least in Canada and in the U.S. Her name was Barbara Hamilton, which was sort of another woman to take care of him. Um, and I, I interviewed uh, some people who knew Lonergan at that time because they would happen to be friends with this woman, Barbara Hamilton, a, another Canadian actor. Uh, named Gordon Pinsent, who is, uh, you know, in, is his 80s now, and, and his daughter, who also uh, is an actor, Leah Pinsent, who who knew Lonergan. She said she she was 12 years old, would have been 12 at the time, and she did say Wayne was kind of creepy. Uh, but uh, Gordon Pinsent told me that uh, Barbara, lo- you know, loved Wayne, and well, they had some sort of relationship, I imagine, and um, you know she had money, and he didn't have to work, and uh, you know so he and he, he was rather quiet. Gordon said all he did was drink scotch and drambuie, or drink drambuie and 
didn't say a, a lot and just smoked cigarettes. And then he, you know, he ended up dying of cancer, probably lung cancer, um, in 1986. So that, I thought that was just sort of another interesting part of his life. Yeah. And he never really had a relationship with his son after he got out, right? W- with the exception of a, a single phone call. Yeah, that, yeah, no, um, you know, that's the other, um, the other aspect of this. No, he, I mean, uh, the, the grandmother ended up raising the son, uh, that is Patricia's mother, Lucille. Uh, the, the, the young, the boy whose name was changed. Uh, you know, his name wasn't Lonergan. They, they took the last name Burton. And, uh, he, uh, there is, he inherits in 1954 when his great grandmother, dies that that would be uh, William Burton's mother uh, Stella her name was when she dies he inherits all this money what Wayne attempted at one point to get some of the inheritance he actually rather a gall it took a lot of gall to do something like that but they he was denied any as part of the inheritance um, and so he's very wealthy he'd be about 78 years old now um, I did not find him or talk to him for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'm not sure what he actually could have told me. I mean, at 18 months, he was told, I think, when he was probably 12 or 13, according to what I've read, what, what exactly happened. So I, I, I sort of would be interesting to talk to him. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't know what he would think of the book and, and, uh, I'm not sure he'd want to know about, you know, you, you sort of have to think about it from his point of view. You know, his father was accused of killing his mother that he didn't know. So obviously a rather traumatic event in his life. And to grow up with that, it would be pretty tragic, I think. Well, we've definitely gone a bit over time here. Um, so not really any time to get into the details of the trial and, and listeners can, can buy the book for those specifics. But I do want to ask you about one of the more fascinating figures in the book, Lonergren's attorney, a man named Broderick, a real uh, bombastic character. Yeah, he was a, I mean, he latched onto the case, Edward Broderick. You know, he was famous for having being the, he had the most contempt charges brought about against him in, in New York court. He was very proud of that fact. I mean, he wasn't getting paid to defend Lonergan. There was no money. I, I don't think anybody was, he never he got it. But then, you know, the, the fame of the whole case and he he was uh he you know he caused there was two trials because uh he caused so much havoc in the first attempt to have put Wayne on trial he ends up leaving and not telling the judge and um so there's a mistrial initially and then there's a second trial with a new judge who's a little tougher on him um but you know he's it's you know right out of uh should this ever be made into a any kind of uh, film or movie, um, there would be a, definitely a good character right out of a, you know, you know, right out of a, a good legal drama, which, which the defense attorney tries every which way to uh, defend his client by yelling all sorts of that he was victimized by the police. And um, he even he even manages to end up putting the the ADA who's uh, looking after the case, who puts him on the stand to question some things uh, about Lonergan's uh, interrogation. So, yeah, he definitely, definitely was interesting, and he was a, quite a character, and it adds a lot of color to the trial. And, and Lonergan ne- never took the stand. No. And well, you write that he later regretted not doing so. 
again, you know, he says he should have and could have, would have, you know, later on he says, oh, I should have, but my lawyer told me not to. Um, but yeah, you have to wonder about that as well. I mean, he said he, he would have talked, but, but I, I, well, I don't know what he would have exactly said. So, you know, the, the jury believed the confession and, and so did I, I suppose. Yeah. It, it was very believable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the case itself has many layers, as you say, and that, that's why I think it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. So tell us where people can get your book, a bit about your website. I, I do have a website and, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Levine 12, uh, which I'm Amy, new member of Twitter, uh, and Facebook, of course, you can find me. But the book is available everywhere, um, at, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble stores. I'm happy to say across the United States. Many of them have the book, or certainly you can get it on uh, online, and um, and Amazon US and Amazon Canada are both have the book. There, there is a because of the times we live in, the uh, you know there the stock is slowly get coming in. That's the only thing I could say. Um, you know, the, the printing industry is under a lot of pressure these days, as you know. But um, I'm launching the book actually. In, in Winnipeg, Canada tomorrow. Um, and, and the book, the local bookstore here has lots of copies. So, but I'm doing it virtually, of course. So that's the other thing. Um, I just, my first virtual launch online. It's the way it is, I guess, but it wasn't quite what I had planned when I, when I started this. Yeah. So the book, yeah, I, I think even Walmart and Target have it online, but I, at least I, I think, I, I think they do. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, no, uh, it's published by Lions Press, uh, which is a an imprint of, connected to Globe Pequot Press and, and an imprint of Roman and Littlefield, which is based in Connecticut and uh, Maryland. Well, well, super. Oh, and what is your website? Website is uh, Alan Levine Books, all one word, dot com. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Again, I have been speaking to Alan Levine. His book is called Details Are Unprintable, Wayne Lonergan and the Sensational Cafe Society Murder. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.